When Edward Yang's Yi Yi premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2000, it was the second time he had screened at the event. In 1994, A Confucian Confusion had been nominated for the Palme d'Or. Several of his previous pictures, That Day on the Beach, Terrorizers, A Bright Summer Day and Mahjong, had already seen him honoured internationally. But it was with Yi Yi that Yang earned the Best Director at Cannes, thus making him the first Taiwanese filmmaker and only the second Chinese director to win the prize. A film of immense subtlety, deep emotion and profound beauty, Yi Yi received further recognition in 2012 when the decadal survey conducted by the BFI listed it amongst the 100 greatest films ever made. It was Yang's seventh feature film, but sadly also his last, as he died of colon cancer in 2007. He was 59 years old. The subtlety of Yang's film is instructive to aspiring filmmakers in several ways, not least of which is the structure he imposed on the screenplay and the style he used to shoot and edit the film. Through a series of carefully assembled but unhurried events, each of them framed by a camera that resolutely keeps its distance from the characters, it follows a middle-class Taipei family as they each face a series of crises over the course of a year. And throughout the course of its two-hour, 53-minute running time, Yang arranges a set of symmetries, incomplete business deals, jilted affairs, miscommunications, betrayals and anxieties that reverberate not only across the household, but also down through the generations. It opens with a wedding where we meet the Zheng family, NJ, a beleaguered software operator, played by Wu Jun his wife Min Min, a corporate middle manager, played by Elaine Jin, and their daughter and son, played by Kelly Lee and Jonathan Chang. The wedding is for Min Min's prosperous but profligate brother, Adi, played by Xi Shen Chen, who is set to marry the heavily pregnant Zhao Yan, played by Xu Shen Xiao. Happy as that sounds, complications begin when Adi's bitter ex-girlfriend, played by Jin Yi Zheng, proceeds to crash the wedding, which causes the family's grandmother, played by Ryu Yong Tang, to suffer a stroke. This has great repercussions because it was to the great patriarch that everyone in the family went seeking sage advice. But even though grandma now lies comatose in bed, everyone still comes to talk to her. That sounds like a comedy, but it isn't. Yet, even though the film ends with grandma's funeral, it isn't really a sad film either. It was Yang's immense talents as a storyteller, travelling the fine line between those emotional states without ever travelling too far into either, that ensured Yi Yi its masterpiece status. As if emblematic of this balancing, the exact midpoint of Yang's screenplay is marked by Zhao Yan giving birth to a baby boy. Here is Yang speaking with Tony Raines on the director's commentary about his preferred style of filmmaking. Stories like, like, like this um, requires actually a, very, a calmer angle, a calmer perspective. Uh, of the viewer, or you suggest the viewer this should be looked at with a with a matured or or very steady attention of uh, observation, whereas I think a lot of uh, Hollywood approaches are more 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 jumpy or more uh, more uh, his, his, hysterical. Perhaps you know you 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 switch the perspectives around. Yang deployed several consistent yet restrained visual and aural motifs to tell the story, and they each revolve around doubling, 
which is only to be expected, considering the film's title is itself a repetition. A literal translation of Yi Yi will be 1-1, but colloquially it relates as a 1 and a 2. From there, we can afford a closer examination of the characters, many of whose names are repeating syllables. Min Min, her daughter Ting Ting, her son Yang Yang, Ting Ting's friend from next door, Lily. And then there is Dada, who is NJ's business partner. And last, but by no means least, Adi's meddlesome ex-girlfriend, Yun Yun, who contrives to disrupt the family gatherings. On top of which, Yang doubles down by way of a visual design. Quite often, he and cinematographer Wei Han Yang, no relation to the director, position the camera so that we are looking at events through glass. Initially, such a technique might suggest an interest in the surface of things, and if that were the case, it would link Yang's work to one of his favourite directors, Michelangelo Antonioni. However, as we shall see from another example in a moment, just because Yang uses a similar technique does not mean he is simply copying another master. Rather than showing the surface of things, Yang uses the glass surface to create a second screen, the first being the cinema screen. And that seems to obscure our view of the events. But it is not designed to obscure. It is to get us to, and prepare for the pun, reflect on what we see. By composing and lighting the frame so that we also see the reflection, gently encourages us to compare and contrast what is happening inside the room as well as outside. Here is Yang once more. Since this film, the camera angle is much more stable, much more uh, calm. And uh, then I realized I can play with the reflections a lot, especially uh, the activities of another space into the frame. This is not planned for when, when I uh, wrote the script. It is a technique that Steven Spielberg often uses in his films, and indeed one he himself borrowed from David Lean's vapid romance Ryan's Daughter, as well as Orson Welles' 1942 adaptation of Booth Tarkington's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Magnificent Ambersons. You can see Spielberg refining the technique across several films. The Sugarland Express, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. and Saving Private Ryan, and Schindler's List where I believe it reached its apotheosis. In fact, Yang appears to have lifted directly from that moment. In Spielberg's Holocaust picture, Schindler is visited by a young woman seeking work. He stands by his office window overlooking the factory floor. Cinematographer Janusz Kaminski frames the image so that while we see Schindler reflected in the glass and the workers below him, we also see a small fire flickering over where Schindler's heart should be thus indicating some sort of stirring within him that what he is doing just might be wrong. My name is Regina Perlman, not Elsa Krause. I've been living in Krakow and forced paper since the ghetto massacre. My parents are in Brasov. Their names are Hanna and Jakob Perlman. They are older people. They are killing older people now in Brasov. They bury them up in the forest. Although Yang asserted that the positioning of a light in his film was a fortuitous accident, there is a moment where Min Min is in her office, silently grieving for her dying mother, and Yang has her stand alone in the semi-darkness, so that while we see her in silhouette, in the reflection of the window, we also see Taipei at night. The skyline itself is silhouetted by the city's buildings, each one marked out by flashing warning lights. 
one of them, in red, blinks silently over Min Min's heart. This is not to suggest that Yang was flagrantly lifting an image from another film. On the contrary, Yang uses the technique for an entirely different and uniquely thematic purpose. The world reflected on the glass is sometimes the world the characters are not noticing. Explicitly, the characters are only aware of what is happening on their side of the glass. Listen to this conversation Yang Yang has with his father, NJ. Daddy, can we know half of the truth? What? I don't get it. I can only see what's in front, not what's behind. So I can only know half of the truth, right? And then later in the story, Yang Yang presents his uncle Adi with a photograph. What's this? For me? This is me? The back of my head? Yang Yang, What's this for? You can't see it yourself, so I help you. In other words, by framing the image in this way, Yang is showing us what is going on behind the camera. This aggregates a twofold effect. While Yang's story is intimate, by focusing on a family, it also appears that the story is small. However, by using the glass to reflect other things, Yang's visual motif meshes the family's drama within the wider context. Consider, for instance, the moment when NJ and his colleagues are driving through the city while discussing the business proposal from the Japanese games manufacturer. Yang places the camera outside the car, at a cantilevered angle, so the windows heavily reflect the buildings of the city. NJ and his colleagues may be speaking in confidence within the private space of the car, but by positioning the camera at that angle, Yang is suggesting their business is not an isolated operation, but something that is connected with the city at large. And proof of that is evinced later in the tragic denouement of one of the storylines involving Ting Ting and her sometime boyfriend, Pangji. But then Yang doubles down on this technique by often splitting the sound from the image, so we see one event and hear another. For instance, when we see Zhao Yan having her ultrasound, we hear a business presentation about video games being delivered to NJ and his associates. Initially, splitting the sound from the image appears to reinforce the incongruity between the events. Yet, in actual fact, it unites them. In all likelihood, Zhao Yan's child will grow up to play video games. On another occasion, when NJ goes to Japan to visit his former flame Sherry, played by Kusui Yen, while they reminisce about old times, Yang offers us a dull view of Tokyo's trains. Just like the city's commuters, it is as if NJ and Sherry are trying to make their own connection. Knowing that using the technique too often will only lessen the effect, Yang alters it so he has his character speak of things we never see. For instance, Adi often speaks of Piggy, his financial advisor, but we never see Piggy, and as it turns out, with good reason. Piggy, who was supposed to have invested Adi's money, has swindled him and fled to mainland China, thus leaving Adi facing financial ruin. 
The same thing occurs with NJ's business introduction to Boss Huang. There, the crucial meeting happens off screen. And finally, Min Min spends a long stretch of the film away from home at her spiritual retreat. We never know what she is experiencing while away, which only underlines the fact that the characters have lives off screen. Again, this is not without precedent. Yasujiro Ozu and Robert Bresson were just two directors whose plot developments often used narrative ellipses, where we do not see crucial events. Again, this appears to drive a wedge between what we see and hear and how the characters interrelate with each other. However, through his narrative pattern, implemented by editor Po Wen Chen, Yang is suggesting the connectedness of everything. But just as we have seen the technique of a window reflecting a second image, the splitting of the sound also has precedence. What Yang is doing is bringing the sound from the following scene over the images of the current one. It's called bleeding the sound, and if you pay close attention to the films edited by Dee Dee Allen in the 1960s, beginning with Robert Rawson's The Hustler, you will find the image of one scene pitted against the sounds of another. Okay, I told you what I wanted about Minnesota Fats. You just go ahead and play them, friend. Just tell me where I can find them, friend. Comes right in this pool room every night, 8 o'clock on the nose. Just stay where you are. He'll find you. Those instances were very brief, lasting barely a few frames, but just enough to inject impetus into the drama. Later in the same decade, Jean-Luc Godard took up the refrain in films such as Pierre Olafou and Two or Three Things I Know About Her. But there Godard was applying the technique to deconstruct film's grammar. However, Yang's intention was neither to accelerate the drama, nor critique cinema's syntax. Instead, it was to underline the differences between the relationships. The soundtrack not only offers up several compositions, the film has the characters performing those melodies. Ting Ting practices Gershwin's Summertime, while NJ's business associate Mr. Ota, played by Issa Ogata, performs Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And then there is the concert Ting Ting attends with Pangzi, where they hear a recital of Bach's Toccata. And if you look closely at the Bach concert, you will see that the pianist accompanying the cellist is none other than Edward Yang himself. Besides being an accomplished musician, he was also a qualified engineer. Perhaps it was those disciplines, with their structures and rhythms, that informed Yang's style of filmmaking. Yeah, and, and I think if the rhythm and, and, uh, and the tempo uh, can be worked into the shot, it just saves a lot of time, uh, production costs, <laughs> and uh, also it's, it's, it's less uh, interruption. Every time you make a cut, it actually, it basically, it's an interruption. You try to make it invisible, but film schools don't tell you that. <laughs> With Yang's death in 2007, cinema lost a major artist. While many directors had delivered their greatest successes by their mid-50s, think of Bergman, Bunuel, Fellini, Ford, Hitchcock, Kiristami, Kurosawa, 
Mitsugushi, Ozu, Renoir, Truffaut and Wells. You get the sense that Yang's temperament ran at a cooler rate, which might mean his greatest works had yet to come. But let us not dwell on that speculation, and instead celebrate the fact that when alive, Edward Yang was a master. The most interesting part of the work is really about understanding people, understanding situations, and uh, so you can make uh, dramatic um, uh, situations out of this. 